Welcome back to Radio Rothbard. I am joined this week not by our usual Ryan McMakin. He is at Freedom Fest. For those that listened last week, uh, we would know we had a great conversation last week about nationalism, which is going to be his topic on Christian nationalism. It's a broader point at Freedom Fest this week. So I am joined by my good friend, a Mises fellow this year, a uh, Twitter's for- first and foremost defender of America's most prosecuted minority. Uh, it's a great Rothbard article out there for the fans of the show. Uh, Connor Mortel. Connor, how are you doing today? I am absolutely fantastic. I've really been spending my whole life trying to build up to be Twitter's most defender of America's most persecuted minority. So I'm honored that that's our our takeaway here. I am fantastic. I I have enjoyed your your cigar posting (laughs) at your in your summer in Auburn uh, this this year. So so first and foremost, before we get into the topic of the day, which is going to be Crash, uh, crushing the, the green lies and defending fossil fuels, a, a favorite topic of yours. What is it like to be a summer fellow at Rothbard Village for those who have not had that opportunity? Oh, it is absolutely fantastic. So as, as you know, though, last summer I was an intern, so I kind of got to be a, a fellow-ish where I got a little bit of the social experiment experience, but I missed out on the more academic experience. It's incredible this year being a full fellow, spending my nights at Rothbard Village, like like you said, having a cigar out in the out in the parking lot, just chatting with the other fellows about God knows what any given night. It is one of the coolest experiences in the world at one of the coolest places in the world. Yeah, there is nothing quite like Rothbard Village and any uh, s- uh, students out there that are thinking about pursuing a, uh, a graduate degree, they should definitely look for next year's opportunities. Um, but that is not the purpose of today's show. We are going to save some of that propaganda for later, though, do have a great Radio Rothbard mug that both of our, but both of us are enjoying today. Absolutely. You can get yours at Mises.org slash Rothmug. And I think we've got a, a special there with Rothpod as the coupon code. But so the topic of the day is uh, fossil fuels and the uh, politicalization of uh, energy markets and the consequences that it has. And uh, this is a topic that you are re- researching as a fellow, correct? Yes, it is. My, uh, my original topic was more empirical stuff, and it's turning lately, thanks to great Dr. Mark Thornton, into a more uh, stylized history of fossil fuels and economics. Excellent. Well, let's kind of start with a uh, some of the basics here, um, because you know obviously the, the energy debate is something that has you know been at the the forefront of the political conversation for for quite a while now, and even within libertarian circles, there tends to be sort of a reflexive you know pushback to fossil fuels to, to traditional fuel sources, hydrocarbons. I, I know some people don't like the, the fossil fuel label and that's okay. Uh, but often you'll get sort of a libertarian response to some of the more obvious heavy-handed uh, government intervention sort of arguments in terms of this field and trying to kind of argue from a position that, oh, well, if it wasn't for the state, then we would have this incredible innovative environment for green fuels. We would have more solar panels on roofs. We would have a lot more wind energy and the like. And I know that for, from your perspective, um, and, and I know that you've, you've been inspired by the work of Alex Epstein, 
um, who was, was on uh, the, the Human Action Podcast, I believe, last year, kind of breaking down uh, his most recent book, Fossil Future. Uh, Fossil Future. Um, but can, you, can we kind of start there as a, as a talking point on why are you interested in particular in fossil fuels and sort of defending traditional energy sources rather than taking the perspective that, oh, well, it's the state that has prevented sort of a, a green revolution within this field? Well, I definitely agree with you. There is a reflexive movement within even among libertarians for that kind of argument. And in fact, until Alex Epstein was on the Human Action podcast last year, I was actually working on getting my house solar powered. So that was what I was in the middle of doing when that episode aired. And I saw that episode, immediately ordered the book behind me and the other book behind me. They're both by Alex Epstein. It's Fossil Future and the Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. And I was completely overwhelmed by his arguments. It shifted my my worldview completely on it. And as far as the particular argument about regulation goes, I went for, I don't know if it was for a Mises Wire article or if it was for one of the uh, things I'm doing for my summer fellowship, but I went at one point to download just the Department of Energy regulations currently on the books that offer incentives for green energy, so an artificial market pushing demand for green energy. And when I just tried to download the list of names of regulations that do that, it crashed my entire computer trying to download that list of names. So this mindset that it's just this regulated market that helps fossil fuels and in a natural market, it really would lead to green green energy, that's that's not really accurate. At the end of the day, a lot of the regulation out there, most of the regulation out there is pushing against fossil fuels. And in a less regulated market, we would see much more fossil fuels, not less of them. And I think the, the energy conversation is an important one because it's it's something that is the, – the, the economic impact involved there is so very broad in terms of the way that has a direct connection to you know all levels really of our you know, economic activity, our, our quality of life. Um, you know, when we just consider just how much we have become dependent upon energy sources. And I, I think that the, the, the broadness of it, just, just how surrounded we are by the virtues of you know, basically power on demand, it is easy to kind of take some of this stuff for granted. And so the, 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 the consequences here of, you know, for, so, so, we, so we kind of have two, two issues. One is a, a broader conversation for, for what a energy, um, you know, what, what is the best way of powering society? And the second one is, is the consequences of the regulation of energy policy, the interventions in energy policy, um, the extent that it can be used for political tyranny in a variety of forms. And it kind of reminds me to the extent to which the consequences from, say, uh, uh, fiat money, right? The way that that there's so many different areas in which, you know, while we can talk about inflation, we can talk about, uh, you know, different consequences from from interest rate manipulation and the like. We can talk about booms and bust, the extent to which fiat money, the, 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 some of those inflationary measures don't take into to proper account the substitution for inferior goods or inferior goods for, for superior goods. So, you know, I, I think within this kind of interesting 
political moment right now where there's a lot of energy in terms of kind of questioning a lot of the the, the major industries within this country in a way that, that I think is obviously born in, in large part due to a heightened perception of, of say like public health tyranny. Um, but you know, the reason why people are, are interested in say like Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s message about you know, skepticism of big pharma um, concerns out there in terms of the quality of food in this country I and mean, seed oil disrespecting and that whole genre within itself. Um, you know, all these these big direct attacks on industries that Americans have you know, taken for granted, have, have been happy to consume um, in, in a variety of forms. The, the, the longer term ramifications here are, are, are quite, um, you know, are, are definitely something we're studying and something we should not trust uh, government credentialed experts to, to tell us the, the full story on. It, it's, it's similar in terms of energy policy where, you know, the substitution for uh, it's, it's not simply about price per se, but the substitution of certain qualities of energy relative to, you know, fossil fuels and sort of the traditional fuel sources and things like that. And I know obviously this is something that, that um, Epstein uh, does a great job of, I think, focusing on with, with his work. Um, so can you outline that dynamic where when we think about energy, it's not simply, say, you know, the the... the the, the, the power that you get from a solar panel versus what you might get from, you know, your traditional energy grid. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the different qualities and aspects of energy sources that need to be factored into this broader conversation. Absolutely. So first, I really agree with you comparing it to like the fiat money conversation. In fact, my uh, office mate here at the Institute is doing his research on MMT, modern monetary theory. And he and I go back and forth a lot. Mises used the term once, luxury beliefs, that a lot of these things are luxury beliefs where the people arguing against fossil fuels or against a gold standard type currency are standing on the backs of the benefits of fossil fuels and gold standard types currencies. And they have these luxury beliefs that they can only have because of the benefits of the pre-existing uh, fossil fuels, good currency, and what have you. As for what you just said about the other costs and whatnot that we don't always think of, of not just the cost of a solar panel versus the cost of fossil fuel. Uh, I've actually got something coming out on this on the Mises Wire soon, where recently Joe Biden bragged about the fact that wind and solar are now officially cheaper than fossil fuels. First and foremost, that's not true. But secondly, even if that were true, what it misses is that there are background costs beyond that. Uh, Epstein explains it saying that there are anytime you see the cost of solar and wind being lower, it's places where the actual costs of energy are highest because it's more than just the unit of solar versus the unit of coal. For solar, you need a means of storing the energy that fossil fuels have far and beyond better than their alternatives. And then beyond that, there are also the two major components of diluteness and intermittency. So at the end of the day, to account for the same amount of fossil fuel energy that you get in a solar or wind option, you would need to thoroughly expand the solar or wind farm far beyond the impact you would expect from fossil fuels. And then the intermittency is really where it gets you, where a lot of the time they measure the reliability of 
energy based on its average requirement. But then we see things like Texas a few winters ago where they started shifting to green energy. But when you base its reliability on its average necessity, it's going to become completely intermittent when you have its peak capacity, when it needs more energy than average. And the only ways they go about solving such things are by backing up the green energy sources with fossil fuels. So it's they they can only account for these other costs of these energies, the intermittency cost, by using more fossil fuels. So even when they move away from fossil fuels, they have to use it to cover the hidden costs you see that aren't just seen in price. It reminds me, as a, as, as a fellow Florida man, uh, I know one of the issues you have when there is a major hurricane, um, like what happened last year with uh, in, in Fort Myers, I know there, there was a big issue with Tesla cars and the, the extent to which the, the battery technology of, of Tesla cars mixing with salt water that you get coming in from flood environments, it created a whole different sort of challenge than dealing with a traditional motor. And that, you know, that there are these a variety of the, the secondary costs, again, you know, people losing their lives in Texas in, in large part, I'm not going to say entirely, I'm not going to try to paint with an overly broad brush, um, you know, but you know, it turns out wind farms are not the most reliable form of energy when you're dealing with winter storms and, and things like that. And, and what, what's, what's interesting as well is that, um, you know, if we can appreciate the propaganda game that the left or interventionists more broadly are so good at in terms of framing this debate, the entire notion of, of green um, kind of just projects this, this notion that the environmental costs for these you know, alternative energy sources are, are self-obvious uh, pluses here. And, and yet when we think about the trade-offs, the unseen dynamic there, whether it is the disposal of wind turbines and the like, uh, when it's the disposal of um, various other aspects that go into um, a push towards electric vehicles and, and all that, when it goes into the increases in the use of traditional power grids as a result of charging up your Tesla and the like, um, you know, th this, this aspect of the seen and the unseen, um, again, not surprising that politicians kind of waving a green flag are ignorant of that. They're, they're ignorant of the unseen and a variety of other things they advocate, not just this field. Uh, but it seems very much this, this dynamic of the seen, the unseen, and if throw Dr. Byland a bone, even the unrealized, um, definitely plays a role in this larger energy discussion. Yeah, absolutely. So that's another one of the big things is we, uh, as far as the unseen goes, is all this stuff that happens in the rest of the capital structure, which is something we as Austrians believe or should understand better than most, because it's one of the few things that we have in such a manner that no other school of economics really even can relate to, is that we really look at the whole structure of production. A lot of the people, when they're having the economics conversation, or not the economics, the energy conversation, they're thinking about powering their car and powering their house, and the conversation ends there. They ignore the unseen. What they forget is that every single step of the structure of production was fueled by fossil-fueled machine labor. So you think about, like, the hurricane example you just used. Not only were the Teslas struggling with that, but also the very reason that Many houses are able to stand today in a way that they wouldn't have, say, 100 years ago in Florida, 
is because we have such better ability to build their houses through fossil fueled machine labor. And the car itself that you're driving was built with fossil fueled machine labor. So it's not just the air conditioning in your house. It's the entire house itself that was built on fossil fuels. And you have to go back through the entire structure of production to really see the unseen and unrealized effects of fossil fuels or unrealized if they were regulated and kept away, what what would be happening if not for this entire structure being fueled by a much more ultra cost effective energy. Meanwhile, on the topic of Teslas, I will say, I actually had a conversation with my dad this week. He just bought a Tesla. So I, I've been telling him that he's betrayed me and I can't come home for Thanksgiving anymore. <laughs> well, he needs to get at least a, a fossil fuel friendly uh, license plate like our, our friend Thomas Massey has. Uh, for, uh, yeah. Yes. Um, the, the other, you know, I, I think interesting dynamic there is that you know, the same sort of political mentality uh, that thinks it can completely recreate the underlying energy system within this country um, simultaneously has very uh, increasingly aggressive pursuits for other large scale uh, feats of political will. Um, you know, obviously, as, as you know, in connection with the energy discussion, there is the favorite uh, tool used by interventionists, which is the concerns over climate change, uh, you know, and, and it's various other labels, um, for, for one, I mean, we, we could talk about just the, the reality of, um, you know, I, I know Bob Murphy and others have, have you know, done a great job of highlighting the extent to, well, where if, if the concern is extreme weather events, yet you have fewer people being killed as a result of fewer weather events, kind of some, some of the, the underlying arguments there, and we'll talk a little bit uh, about the anti-human uh, dynamic of this uh, here shortly, uh, but you, you had an article recently in response to some of the plans out there that are, are seem to be growing increasingly um, serious, which is itself very concerning. Um, take, taking you know, straight out of a comic book villain plot of the attempts to to regulate the sun itself on this this earth, which kind of seems an interesting dynamic there with uh, the, the, the going hand in hand with a uh, a love for solar panel or solar power. Yeah, so that one was uh, I was I was like I said, I, my my research here has been turning more into a stylized history of uh, of energy, and as such, I was just going through trying to look at timelines of various energy sources. And whenever you look at a timeline of solar energy, the first step is always like Grug walked out of cave, felt sun was hot, but then it skips a few hundred years and gets to. Uh, more than a few hundred years, but it gets to the sixth century Justinian code where they actually did regulate that every person had a right to the sun. And I remember reading that and I was talking with my office mate and I was like, you know, it's so funny. This sounds ridiculous when you and I sit here reading it today, but it's, it's not that far off from a lot of the things that people calling for solar panels really want. And there are a lot of regulations where we start hearing comic book level villains trying to call for such regulations and they they make it on predictions that the world is ending and therefore we all need this right to the sun and in fact on that note i we are just a few weeks out of the uh five-year anniversary of greta thunberg telling us we have five years left to stop using fossil fuels or it's all over so the good news is either way it's too late now we may as well use what we've got 
Um, but it really, we do get these comic book villains making such claims that are not that far off from the sixth century Justinian code saying every person must have a government mandated right to the sun. It, it's not that far off from the claims we hear today. And that, as we mentioned earlier, the, some of the, the anti-human dynamics, which I, I think are, you know, whether it is a, a desire for uh, mandating medical decisions, whether it is uh, some of the uh, stuff going on with the food supply there, there is the, the specter of this very sort of clear uh, you know, population control, anti-human thriving dynamic that seems so completely baked into a lot of the you know, prevailing ideologies of various aspects of the left. And, you know, all this, this takes various different types of forms out there. Um, but you, you have another article um, recently on The Wire about the extent to which fossil fuels um, help us better and fight uh, fires and environmental disasters, based off the title of your article. Uh, but but there is this, this larger component that along with the, um, again, the, 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 the extent to which humans are better, uh, becoming better acclimated to dealing with um, different weather environments out there generally, and that kind of can lead to a larger conversation about this element that is, is often overlooked by this conversation. I know that's something that, that Epstein um, focus, uh, focuses on a great deal within his work, and some of that has, you know, I, I think a, a bit of a kind of lowercase o objectivist sort of framework, which I know that his uh, philosophical background comes from. I'm not going to try to lump him in with uh, 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 Leonard Peikoff and, and Yaron Brooks, who you know, would, would be pro-nuclear bombing, um, so some of these actors here. But, but this, this larger, um, this blindness to the question of ultimately what is the aim of society? Is it the preservation of the earth for the extent of preserving the earth as an inherent good in itself? Or is the degree to which the consequences of the decisions we make as a society go to the well-being of humans individually? And so, you know, if, if, if you overly simplify it even to the dynamic to which, um, you know, if, if you fully bake into even the narratives about the, the consequences of CO2, you know, you, you don't question the underlying science to, to make the point that if there's a trade-off here between innovation and economic advancement and prosperity towards on, on one side and on the other side, the inability to feed and house and, and allow for human beings to actually be human beings, to, to, to think freely, to create, to prosper, to have families and the like. You know, this, this human element is something that is, is you know, often lacking outside of, you know, when they try to, to take a, you know, a news clip here and talk about how the plight of this one, you know, made-for-TV, um, you know, Twitter viral thing is can all be accumulated to, to climate change and our you know, refusal to, to tax carbon. You know, th this this human dynamic is, I think, an important one, going really you know straight to exactly what are we talking about when it comes to energy policy, environmental policy, um, however you want to frame this debate. Yeah, the human element of it all is is enormous, and it's probably the most ignored factor by the people opposed to opposed to fossil fuels or hydrocarbons, as you were saying. It's Alex Epstein describes that the current system tends to dis to evaluate energy from an anti-impact framework. The major problem with an anti-impact framework, though, is that human beings are impactful. 
full stop, human beings, human beings really shouldn't be able to survive and certainly shouldn't be able to flourish the way we have on our earth. The earth is not sufficient for human survival. It is dangerous to human survival. We, we should not have made it this far. The reason we're able to make it this far is that we have tools and we're able to use tools and we are able to impact the earth in such a way that we can make it livable for us. And the ultimate tool we've ever come across that does that is that of fossil fuels. It has, like you said, I've got an article up talking about the way fossil fuels help fight off environmental disasters. I talk a little bit about Alex Epstein as he talks about how fossil fuels are used to prevent forest fires and used to fight forest fires when they come. We talked earlier about the way fossil fuels are used to build stronger structures that allow for us to be safe during hurricanes. You mentioned Bob Murphy's work on the on the actual climate-related deaths over the last 100 years, and Alex Epstein talks about that too. He shows climate-related deaths have gone down 98% in the last 100 years. And if you were looking at any of this through a pro-human perspective, you would have to engage with those things. You'd have to engage with the way fossil fuels affect the structure of production. You'd have to engage with all the ways that humans have benefited from fossil fuels and if you're ignoring these benefits, then you're not looking at it from a human perspective. You're just trying to attack the impacts when you're ignoring all of the demonstrable benefits that human beings have had from the proliferation of fossil fuels. Absolutely. I think that's why Tom Dahlrens is, I think, one of his favorite lines is uh, green watermelons because they're green on the outside and red on the inside. And of course, this goes directly to you know, the extent to which, you know, once you allow for the ability to tax all these very aspects that go into, you know, that could become, you know, broadly lumped into the mantle of combating climate science, you know, whether it is taxing carbon, which is often kind of thrown out there as a more free market approach to this, um, you know, that there are, you know, in terms of dealing with pollution, dealing with, you know, the environmental impact, and particularly the impact that the activity of uh, some people can have on others. Um, you know, one of the things that comes to mind is, from from our perspective is Murray Rothbard's uh, framework in terms of dealing with promotion pollution from a property rights perspective. And yet, you know, those sort of attempts, you know, that that sort of framing dealing with these sort of things are are, are obviously um, do not have a lot of interest within uh, these conversations from from those promoting it. It seems ultimately, I mean, you can look at, you know, if, if you consider the, the Green New Deal, for example, and you actually read through, I mean, it's, it's so, you know, often these are uh, a large money pots for various forms of left-wing patronage, um, including, you know, reparations for climate justice and the like. And and so so what would your, uh, your perspective be, for one, on the extent to which the Green Agenda allows for, you know, kind of an explicit political authoritarianism dynamic, but what, as well as you know, someone who is informed by uh, a kind of Rothbardian you know, political uh, you know, uh, political economy and, and, and respect for property rights, um, you know, what, what, what framework do you see there as valuable in terms of, of your own research and some of these things? So uh, David Gordon talked about it uh the Rothbard Graduate Seminar this past, this a few weeks ago, that uh, Rothbard had a tendency when he was arguing to really use the phrase, that's not correct, and even if it is, so what? And I think that comes a lot <laughs> to this, where when, when, when you have that argument from the Rothbardian perspective, it's 
Rothbard absolutely answers pollution through a private property framework across the board. And it, coupled with the other to uh, the other topics we've talked about today, works really well. You can say when someone's having that, well, private property couldn't answer, answer pollution argument. It's one, that's not true, as Rothbard has shown. It can answer pollution. In fact, there are many ways private property can handle pollution. And two, even if that were true, so what? Because the benefits of fossil fuels outweigh the costs in such a way that it lets us handle pollution better by producing more fossil fuels. So it's kind of that same one-two punch of Rothbard shows it's true that private property can handle it. And arguments like Epstein show that even if private property couldn't handle it, it's really not a hit on a private property claim because it could still proliferate energy in such a way that it could answer the problem of pollution, even if it couldn't answer the problem itself of creating pollution, which, again, it can. Yeah, that's, again, going back to, to Bob Murphy's work, who's, who I've probably read most of in terms of the, the economics of climate change. And there's a lot of even fascinating dynamic there where even if you accept the, the own estimates from you know, climate change alarmists, um, you know, there, there's, there's plenty of evidence that there's actually a, a positive uh, uh, economic impact from, an, from, from a level of global warming just in terms of you know, dealing with the, the economic costs of the, of the cold rather than the heat and yada, yada, yada. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm not here to make my own independent uh, judgments on that. I'm just here to, to you know, talk about it and talk about the work of others. But, but it is interesting, even from those own dynamics where you know, the, the attempt to actually prove a harm um, you know, the science is not settled, um, even from their own perspective on, on some of these things. And uh, but again, that goes to some of the nuances there that uh, are not all that compelling if your goal is to simply uh, uh, you know, push a, a larger government program. Um, now, I'm sure, Connor, that we have people listening right now who think that it is that, that we are missing a very important part to this conversation and that there is one obvious dynamic where a free market might provide a better source of energy, and that's obviously the question of nuclear power. Um, and so, you know, can you can you talk a little bit about you know, if if we look beyond sort of the niche projects um, that are most commonly associated with, say, green political movements and wind and solar and the like, um, and rather towards you know greater energy innovations that have proven to be able to support and replace reliance upon uh, traditional fuel sources. Um, you know, how, how does that, how, how does energy innovation work into some of your work? So nuclear power is a really interesting one because even Alex Epstein admits it's probably the source of energy that will eventually replace fossil fuels. The problem in nuclear power is it is almost as hated by the green energy crowd as fossil fuels are because on the list of anti-impact, nuclear power has the next most impact after fossil fuels. So a lot of the hate that fossil fuels get, nuclear also gets. And there's a lot of criticism of its safety and whatnot. I actually have to say, I uh, back when I worked for the Florida House of Representatives, I was blessed that our local Florida Power and Light lobbyist took us on a tour of our local nuclear power plant. And it was unbelievably safe in my experience. I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on nuclear, so I was just getting what my own, my own eyes saw. But when I came in, I had a pocket knife in my, in my back pocket and I set off the metal detector and the jail cell came in and a man showed up with an AR-15 holding me out until they could clear that it was just a pocket knife. 
I got inside and I was asking, I was like, wow, this security is intense. And they said, well, yeah, we actually have a team of retired SEALs attack the facility every six months to make sure it's still secured and they've never broken through a security. And then better yet, after 9-11, they flew a plane into the plant with it all powered down and the falling debris was the only threat to the people on the plant, was the falling debris of the plane. So the nuclear attacks are somewhat misinformed where they try and describe it as unsafe. They like giving the Chernobyl horror story. But what the strongest attack on nuclear is, and it's not even an attack, it's just a why it's not quite there yet, is just that fossil fuels have had a lot more time to develop their technology. And as such, right now, they are more efficient. There is a very real world where nuclear could potentially one day win out. But there's one of two answers on that. If nuclear does have the capacity to become a more energy efficient source than fossil fuels, then we should, in the meantime, be proliferating fossil fuels to support that possible outcome. We should use the most efficient energy source we have to build on the next most efficient energy source. And if it turns out that it's inevitably not going to be true that nuclear has that ability to finish, to become more efficient than fossil fuels, then that's all the more reason to still proliferate fossil fuels. So in the meantime, while fossil fuels are still our most efficient energy source, we should be proliferating their use to the best of our ability, even if that mean, even if they won't always be, they are today. And as such, we should still be doubling down on them. And that's kind of what they, the interesting dynamics is that as uh, the climate change dynamic has kind of conquered and captured this broader conversation about energy policy, you know, we, we've seen, you know, particularly within Europe, and part of this obviously sparked by other issues such as the 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 consequences from the tsunami in Japan's nuclear reactor back in the, the early 2010s. Um, but you know, at the at the time where you know, we 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 are seeing a a decrease in nuclear energy capacity within Europe. Um, this is something that you know one of the most successful. Um, ideologically driven political projects has been the rise of explicit green parties throughout Europe, um, not just simply one nation. And there's certainly a lot, lot more teeth there than they are with the green party you might think of from an American context. But these are, are political parties that have been able to capture a large per, a, a number of parliamentary seats, have been able to form coalitions with majority governments. Um, have been able to really throw some weight around. And as a result, we've seen a decrease in energy capacity um, within a variety of states uh, or countries within Europe. And of course, that has now created this very interesting uh, uh, dimension when we deal with the geopolitical consequences of you know the conflict with Ukraine and Russia, the way that that disrupted um, outside energy sources coming into Europe, um, you know, that, that have created uh, challenges in dealing with winters and the like, where even some of the green political trends have been rolled back. You've, you've even have green politicians saying, OK, well, maybe we should we should pause this. Right. You know, I, I, I want to have heat in the winter more than I want this political project to continue through. It's, it's a you know, what element do you think? You know, I, I think it's, it's one of those things where. Again, as we mentioned earlier, it's so easy to take 
these power sources for granted. It's only when there is a challenge to it, whether it be as a temporary result of a weather event or whether it is a geopolitical event that disrupts other reliable forms of energy sources, that it, it seems that there's nothing that can help push back against the regime's narrative quite like the necessity of needing uh, energy sources that that, that are um, uh, being demonized out there. And so, so you know, what, what are your dynamic, what, what are your thoughts in terms of this broader uh, conversation going on? Um, you know, I, I, I know that, again, even within, you know, you, you can talk to someone who might consider themselves a, a, an edgy, uh, you know, new right person. And yet, as soon as you get to energy policy, they still kind of adapt sort of a green aesthetic. You know, how do you think is, is the best way to go about sort of communicating this alternative view of, of you know, the energy debate, um, given this sort of current political environment? So you're definitely right that the best way is an energy crisis, but we like not getting to the yeah, energy for, crisis. For, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here in Auburn, Alabama in the middle of July, and you've you've been in the Mises Institute here. It's not exactly not exactly warm in here, despite being Alabama. It's probably 60 degrees in here. And it'd be easy to sit at this keyboard and say, oh, we need green energy right now when I'm sitting in the nice air-conditioned room. But at the end of the day, when you're in northern Europe and you don't have energy, it suddenly you get much quicker to argue for fossil fuels. The... The answer Epstein gives is to, he calls it argue to 100, to co come with a completely uncompromising argument saying we need to not just accept fossil fuels as they are, as the best we've got, and we've we've got them now, so we may as well use them. He, he says you have to double, triple down and push for more fossil fuels and really recognize that, look, when you have these fights, you're going to compromise most of the time anyway. And when you start at, eh, it's the best we've got, and we, we're going to use what we have, but we're not going to use any more of it, you're going to compromise at using less. And Epstein calls for, no, from the get-go, you have to call stronger, we need more, we need more, we need more. And in fact, long before Alex Epstein said that, I have this on my desk that I keep every day here at the Institute, a, a great man took an uncompromising view by the name of Lou Rockwell who stated, I am a sinner, but unrep unrepentant. You see, I don't practice environmentalism and I don't believe in it. I don't recycle and I don't conserve, except when it pays to do so. I like clean air, really clean air, like the kind an air conditioning makes. I like the bug-free indoors. I like development as in buildings, concrete, capitalism, and prosperity. So the real answer for what we need to do is have the bravery of Lou Rockwell and be willing to be that unrepentant sinner. And when when the conversation comes up and it is someone in a paleo-libertarian circle who's an edgy right-winger, like you said, on everything else, but suddenly says, whoa, 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 I, I have no issue with that. We should use we should use the energy. We say, absolutely not. We have the most ultimate civilization-building energy source there's ever been at our fingertips, and we should continue diving unrepentantly into that energy source rather than trying to leave the best tool we've ever had just sitting at the table untouched. Uh, absolutely. And it's, uh, you know, we, 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 we may not be hoping for uh, energy crises to help spark an awakening, but maybe some of the politically created consequences in California uh, with, with some of their, uh, yeah, I, I would I'd far, far trust the, the uh, 
source of air conditioning in Alabama uh, more than I would in certain parts of Gavin Newsom's state. Um, so, so maybe some of those state-by-state state level interventions um, can help spark more of that, uh, that rebellion against the, uh, the credo of the, the religious environmentalists. Well, as a Floridian, I don't think there's any possible better scenario than sparking their interests by an energy crisis in California. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been a fun conversation, Connor. I look forward to uh, seeing you in person for, at Mises University. That'll be coming up soon. And if you want to, uh, for, for, for listeners out there, Mises University is always available to watch live uh, on our YouTube channel and other platforms. And if you are a Mises member, you can get the full view, uh, virtual Mises U experience, which comes with a few additional goodies beyond the live streams. And also, if you're interested more in this topic, we have one of uh, we have a new animated beginner series on fueling a freer future. I'm glad I got that one out without a mistake. Um, and you can find that video as well as our other videos on uh, foreign policy, uh, inflation, and the Fed and kind of a broad overview on economics at the Mises Begins page at mises.org slash begin. Uh, Connor, uh, where can people find more of your work? Uh, well, honestly, the best place to find my work is just mises.org. Go there, search my name, Connor Mortel. I, uh, I, I've got a Twitter. It's, it, I'm nothing particularly special, but at the end of the day, if somebody's looking for my work, I say find me at mises.org. There you go. Excellent. Well, this has been Radio Rothbard for Tho Bishop for Connor Mortel. We'll be joined next week by Ryan McMakin. We'll catch up with him after Freedom Fest. We'll see you next week. Bye.